One of the things that if you know my wife that you know about her is that she is a um, she doesn't she doesn't sit still. She invents projects, projects that most normal people, I assume most normal people, maybe that's because I think I'm normal, but most normal people would not sit around and think up to do. And they usually have to do with the house and how to better the house. And so one of the things that I've had to do is learn how to do some things around the house that I didn't know before. And one of them is how to hang light fixtures. Now, if you bought our house that we sold here in Waco, there's a light fixture in there that was done by me. And it's a fan and a light fixture. And neither works at the same time. (laughs) So they work. I mean, I got the electricity running and I got the fan running and we could get the light going, but the fan would have to go off. And I could never figure out. I crossed every different wire, every different way you could imagine and still could never get the fan to work properly. And uh, one of the things I've realized is I don't understand electricity at all. I mean, literally, you could tell me that there's a liquid that flows through the, these little pipes in the wall that come out these little slots, and that would be satisfying to me. There's something abstract about the concept of electricity that even though I took physics and all of those other things, that I just don't understand it. It it doesn't make sense in my mind. Now, I understand how it works, and I understand that it's important, and I can kind of understand electrons and neutrons and things like that, but I have no concept for what that really means. It seems way too abstract for me. And I wonder, when I think about the word that is before us today, if it's not like that, if it's not a word that we all have some sort of working knowledge of and we know it's important, but if I told you it was something else, you would, see, you would say, well, that sounds reasonable. That's, that, that seems to make sense. I think when we say grace, when we talk about the word grace, that as Christians, we, we have some sort of working definition of it, but we're not really sure. It seems like an abstraction to us. And maybe that's because all we have is a working definition. So today we're going to look at grace and we're not going to uh, try to come up with a working definition. We're going to look at grace at work. We're going to see what grace does. And then we're going to hopefully see how God uses grace and how it should begin to apply to our lives. And as we see how it works, then maybe we can um, see how it should be working in our lives and move toward it. All right, so if you will, turn over to Psalm 51. I know it seems kind of quaint and cliche for Christians to talk about grace, but I wonder if we really understand it. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, this um, special day that's been set aside, the day of resurrection, the day uh, of salvation when Christ has um, secured all blessing, all glory, all grace for his people. We thank you that it breaks into our world even today, even this morning. We pray that you would break into our world through your word, by your spirit, that you would expand our hearts, that we would leave here with lips enabled to praise you, with hearts put back together, with mouths that sing and rejoice. Lord, we thank you that this is the promise of the grace that is ours in Christ. We ask that you would uh, feed us by it this morning, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, um, I, I know that uh, you guys have been instructed in a working definition of grace, and it's a great one. But I want us to look at the work of grace and what it, what it uh, looks like, at least in a snapshot in the life of King David. As you uh, maybe have noticed, there's a, a, a heading to this particular psalm that tells when it was written. And it was written uh, after Nathan came to David and caught him in his sin with Bathsheba. And so the first point of the sermon today and the first thing I want you to understand about grace is that it pursues God's people. David uh, went a full year uh, hiding and covering and couching this sin. He, uh, we have no idea what that year was like. We don't know if it was tormented or if he was going along in relative ease. But we do know that it was a length of time, yet God had not forgotten And God did not leave David in the security he had found in that year, whatever it was. But he sent a prophet after him. Grace is a pursuing grace. It comes for God's people and it comes for them even in their darkest hour. Grace is an exposing grace. You know, it's... uh, very easy to imagine that David uh, had, had pulled this off in some way. That David had actually covered up his sin, gotten away with it, moved on, and began to kind of get to that point that maybe you can all relate to where you, th- you think you've gotten through it. And yet God comes through a prophet and exposes David. The grace of God exposes us for who we are. It does not leave us to our own security and places of hiding. 
but it pursues us to the depths of where we are found. I don't know if you've ever heard, um, heard it said that somebody's repentance is not real because they only repented after they got caught. This passage says that's just wrong. That it's actually the mercy of God and His grace that catches us, even in the depths of our sin. That, it's, that it was the work and mercy of God that exposes him for who he is and what he's done comes after him. People of God, the grace of God comes to us and it lays us bare. It opens us up. It shines light into the dark corners of our hearts and lives. It catches us. I know um, in my own life, uh, times of running and hiding and fear of being caught because I thought it was a fear of judgment. I thought judgment was coming. But instead, our passage today just opens up with the idea that grace finds us. Wherever we are, whatever the circumstance, and that it is His mercy, it's not to harm. The next thing then we see about grace is David's response to it, or David's response in the midst of it. And I, I want you to understand that this isn't just a, this isn't grace, kind of this thing out there. And this is why I use the idea of electricity, because I think we think it's something like that. It's something nebulous, and you can't really touch it, and you can't really define it. And it's out there, and you just hope you can kind of grasp and attach it, or tap into it, or something. It's some sort of force. And that's not it. It's the very movement of God towards his people and it's the context in which he's working and it's everything about his power and work in the life of his people. And so not only does it catch us and not only do we see David's response to it, but as David goes through that response, we're seeing the work of grace. It's not just a response to grace. David's response is the work of grace. Okay? So um, grace is, is deeper than just something that God kind of throws out there and hits us with and then we respond to out of something we have. Grace is, is saturating this whole passage and leading and caring about everything that's going on here. So we must understand uh, how that's working. So David, when he's caught by God, when he's pursued by God, even to the depths of his own sin, he's found out and the light is on him. David responds by grace. And the way he does that is by recognizing and acknowledging his sin. It's a great passage because it's really easy to outline. David uses three particular words for sin, and I want us to look at them. If the work of grace leads us to acknowledge sin, then we ought to look at what sin looks like. And we ought to understand it to its depths, as David does. The first, words he, first word he uses there in verse 1, I'm not going to use the Hebrew. It's, it's, it's quote, uh, translated transgressions. Excuse me. This word is really just born out of David's asserting his, his own desires his own wants, his own wishes at the expense of whomever gets in the way. Transgression is, it gets at the idea that there's a boundary that's been established by God and David decides that whatever's in his way, he's going to cross it. It doesn't matter. I mean, that's easy for us to see if we know the story of David and Bathsheba, what that, that, that boundary was, right? He took another man's wife. He, he coveted his, that wife. Um, and then he took her, committed adultery. Then, on top of that, to cover his sin, he committed murder. Now, we know that David didn't actually pull the trigger, so to speak, but David did send Uriah into the place where he would be killed. David was the orchestrator behind his death. Peshach, uh, transgressions gets at the, at the idea 
that there is a boundary of God that's been crossed at the expense of our own desires. It's easy for us, I think, to think about sin in these terms. We're okay with law. We're okay with the rules and boundaries. And as a matter of fact, most of us, I think, when we think about our own sin or brokenness, this is where most of our thinking goes. There's boundaries that we should cross or should not cross, and we have. Or there's boundaries, there's things that we should do, and we haven't. And we've transgressed, we've broken something that's explicit. As a matter of fact, we take this and we take great comfort in these kinds of laws and create our own so that we know exactly how we're doing. We use law as a measurement for how we're doing. So David doesn't stop there. The scriptures won't leave us thinking that sin is merely the transgression of a known boundary. In verse 2, there's a word translated there, iniquity. And this expresses distortion and twistedness. Now, this gets at the idea that not only um, are our motives, or not only do we break laws, but that our very motives are twisted and distorted. The very things that we put our hands to in, in a good way are broken and twisted. Do you, do you ever find yourself frustrated in your life that no matter what you put your hand to, it just doesn't quite work out the way you wanted it to? No matter how well you plan, no matter how uh, long and, uh, you've labored and how much uh, wisdom you've sought, that the minute you put your hand to it, you begin to see that there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong here. The twistedness and distorted of our, uh, distortedness of our own desires, our affections, even the good things we do. The best example I can come up with this is personal. It'd be easy for me to say, and it's true for me to say, that I believe that the the importance of the preached word is that God's word is clearly proclaimed and that God's people are really saved through this event of preaching. And I really believe that. But I also live under the fear of preaching because I want you to like me. I want to get up here and have you, after the, the fact... Pat me on the back and tell me how great a job I've done. I want you to think I'm great, to be honest. And the twistedness of my own heart gets in the way of something even like preaching. I watch body posture and language, uh, body language. I look for my own salvation in the accolades of others. The twistedness of our own desires creeps in in many ways. And it's sin. And the grace of God begins to poke its finger around in these things and expose them. Sometimes subtly, sometimes with a two by four. But it's there. The third thing that we see that David understands in the midst of grace is that sin, uh, it's a word called sin, verse two, it's used in verse two and three. And it's just a word for missing the mark. This is, this is the idea of, of giving it your best shot, but you just don't hit the bullseye every time. No matter how, how well you, you do, you still miss the mark. You come up short. There's brokenness at every turn. The grace of God comes to us and exposes us, and it exposes the depth of our sin and need. Grace and understanding yourself rightly go hand in hand. They cannot be separated or removed from one another. And then David goes on to see that all this summed up in verse 4 is evil. Evil in the sight of the God, this is no small matter. 
David now sees his sin for what it is. It's a great offense to a holy God. David sees himself rightly in the context of grace. Grace leads us to see and face up to the true nature of who we are. The next thing we see, though, is it also leads us to face up to the true nature of who God is. Verse 9, we see that David asked for the peering eye of God to be turned away from him. He understands that not only is this transgression broken out and made his life miserable, which I'm sure it did. Uh, he, all the things that he had to go through to cover it up, we at least know the captain of his army knows the treachery of David's uh, having Uriah killed. His army would have sh- surely understood that David uh, was not as honorable as they once thought. He had to live with that, but he comes to the realization that it's the peering eye of God that he cannot stand. That sin brings real guilt before God. He asked God to turn his face from his sins, to look away. That, that look of God is, is the look of his judgment, his knowledge. And David understands that sin produces guilt with his God. The next thing we see is that David understands in, that sin produces stains. And he uses three words again, translated in verse 1, blot out. In, the sec- in verse 2, wash and then on to, uh, to the word cleanse. Blot out means to actually obliterate. David is, is it's as if his sin is written on stone tablets, and he's asking for those tablets to be smashed. God, these things are strong, and a strong record against me. Smash them. Obliterate them. Wash has the idea of scrubbing or pummel, pummeling. If you've ever seen a washboard used, Or if you ever washed your own clothes in college and know what it's like to wash a red t-shirt with all your whites. And David sees that the stain of sin has crept into everything. And his only hope is that it be scrubbed and washed and pummeled out. And then the idea of cleansing is the idea of intense heat used to separate impurities out of fine metals. To remove the dross, David is asking to be put through uh, the crucible of God's grace in his hand and his judgment, even to remove the stain of his sin. Sin makes us foolish. He asks for wisdom and sin ultimately puts us in danger. Verse nine, again, he asks God's judgment to be removed. Verse 11, he fears being cast away from God. And in verse 4, he says that he knows that his sin is only against a holy God. Now, some people, when they read that, they say, well, how can David say that? How can David say against you alone have I sinned? Because surely he sinned against Bathsheba, right? And then surely he sinned against Uriah. And then surely, being the king, he sinned against the entire nation. And all those who would follow after him, who, who uh, at, this, at this sin, the nation begins to fall apart. Surely he sinned against them. David is, uh, the, the scriptures are not teaching that those are not sins against those people. The scriptures teaching uh, the, that they pale in comparison to the God who's really offended. It's not to diminish that there's sin against others. It's to say that in light of God and his holiness, 
It's as if there's no other sin. The importance of sin. uh, The next thing that we have to see then is that David sees that his sin comes from within. This is the scary part. That David does not push the sin outside of himself. And here's what I want to ask. Here's what I want us to think about. When we think about sin in our own lives or in our own world, just ask yourself a couple of diagnostic questions. Are you most often offended by the sin of others around you than you are by your own? Are you most often offended by the sins of this culture than you are your own? Do you look at the culture around you and think it needs to be fixed instead of thinking that the church needs to be a place of repentance? Do you get more concerned and worked up over the sin of a politician than you do your own? Do you get more worked up and offended at the sin of your spouse or your children than you do your own? David uh, presses into the knowledge of his sin and he understands that it comes from within him. He uses the first personal pronoun, me and my. He says it comes from his inward being. He asks that, this be, that the cleansing be done within him. He says that in his mother's womb, he was sinful. He does not blame Bathsheba. He does not blame the culture where baths are taken on uh, rooftops for his sin. He does not look outside of himself. He begins to press in and see more deeply his own state before God. I have uh, this illustration that is one of my favorite uh, Seinfeld episodes. I hope using Seinfeld doesn't offend anyone. But um, if you've seen the Seinfeld, if you've ever seen Seinfeld and you know the characters, you know Kramer, right? One of the favorite uh, prop comics of all time. He uses his body as a prop. Um, And in this one particular episode, he has a cold. And yet he doesn't trust doctors. So he doesn't want to go to a doctor to have his cold diagnosed and to get medicine for it. And he, re- he refuses. Jerry and, and, and Kramer have this conversation. And so Kramer decides that he's not going to go to a doctor. But he happens to be on the street one day. And there's a man walking his dog. And the dog has the same symptoms that Kramer has. The same cough. The same hack. And so he begins to ply the man for uh, the, the, the uh, veterinarian that treats smuckers. Because Kramer decides that it's worth trusting a veterinarian to cure his, his cough than it is a doctor. And so he goes and begins to take Smucker's medicine for his cough. And I think when it comes to our knowledge of sin, that this is kind of what we do. That, that we, we, we hear people talking about it and we, we hear what the scriptures say about it. And maybe you're sitting there being a little uncomfortable at how this, this passage is pressing in. And I'm, I'm standing up here saying that this touches everything and that everything you put your hand to is broken and tainted. And you don't really want to hear that. We live in a culture that just doesn't want to hear it. I mean, if you've ever watched Oprah, you, there's no doubt that our culture doesn't want to hear that there's something broken inside of us. Something wrong, something tainted, something stained. So we have Oprah and Dr. Phil and we would say we'd rather have medicine from them than what the scriptures teach. And we wind up taking medicine that will not help us with our sin and our real struggle. David is not uncertain 
as to where his sin dwells. It is within him. Look there in verse 5 and 6. It says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. You behold, you, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. So he's saying, I don't have truth in the inward being. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. God, do this work within me. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. When the grace of God begins to grip our hearts, our language becomes more honest with an acknowledgement of sin. It's my sin. It's iniquity. It's my transgression. It's not just out there. I really think the church has spent years looking at the culture around it, pointing fingers outward, and is really more offended by the sin of, of its culture than it is by its own. The grace of God brings us to the, to the knowledge of our own sin. James 1.13 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by, by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Sin comes from within us, and David understands. So what does grace then do with this sin and this knowledge of, of, of a holy God? How does it lead through the process? What is, grace, what is the work of grace beyond that? Is it stop with just realizing that you're a sin? Are we all just about a pity party? Absolutely not. Christians should be uh, the most honest people around you. They should be ones that uh, recognize their faults on the workplace and say, yeah, I'm sorry I missed that appointment. I forgot instead of making up an excuse. It's a hard thing to do to say, yeah, I just forgot. I'm sorry because it makes us look bad. Christians should be able to do that and be honest about their sin, but that's not where it stops. Let me see. Let me just show you that. David understands the end of the grace of God. In verse 8, he wants to hear joy and gladness. He wants the bones that have been broken by God's um, hand to rejoice. He understands that the work of grace is ultimately worship and praise of God. That it's delight in the goodness of God. It moves toward God. So where does that come? How does grace lead us there? And I want you to understand that the, the answer is scandalous. And that if we don't believe that the grace of God is scandalous, then we don't move through this process. David cries out for mercy. Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgression. Wash away my iniquity. Have compassion on me. That word is related to a mother's love for a nursing child. In verse 1, he also appeals to the covenant love of God. Derek Kidner says this, Have mercy is the language of one who has no claim to the favor he begs. Grace leads us to cry out to, for something that we do not deserve. Here's what you've got to understand about David's sin. There is no provision for it in the Old Testament. There's no sacrifice for outright adultery. There is no sacrifice for willful murder. There's not a provision for it. The provision is you take someone's life, you die. That's the provision. David cannot appeal to the law of God. David cannot appeal to anything other than something that resides in God that would move towards somebody who has no leg to stand on. 
who has nothing to beg for other than the mercy of God, the compassion and loyal love of God, something in God himself. And I think we're okay with David and his sin. David's one of one of our favorite Bible characters. Some of you actually in this room would not surprise me if you came up and said to me, I'm mad that God saved David. I've heard it before. I hate the way he treats his wife. I hate the way he treated his other wife. I hate the way he treats Uriah. Do you know the treachery of a king who allows his most loyal man to die the way David does? Some of you in this room may look at David and say, I can't believe God would save a man like that. Some of you in this room may look at David and say, yeah, but David's one of the good guys. He's one of the ones on on the list that, that we feel comfortable with. But the point of the passage and the point of God's grace is that none of us have anything on, on which we, we uh, can hold God ransom. We have nothing in ourselves that God is forced to move toward us because of. We all stand before him like David with no appeal other than have mercy on me. The sacrifices of bulls and goats will not do it. David appeals to something in the very covenant, loving, merciful, compassionate nature of his God. This is why I believe that David says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. If I had a sacrifice to offer God, I would. So another diagnostic question Do you believe that you have no leg to stand on? Does the scripture and the grace of God, is it leading you to a place where you have nothing except to say, have mercy on me, O God? God, move toward me, a sinner. Cleanse me. Wash me. Grace and the working of grace leads us to repentance. It leads us to turn away from our sin, but it leads us. Repentance is not merely turning away from our sin, it's turning to a God on whom alone we can rest for our salvation. That's it. That's the work of grace. Grace leads us to a knowledge of. Grace catches us where we are, it finds us, it pursues us into the darkest places of our lives. Uh, Grace exposes us for who we are, and it exposes us for who we are up against a God for who He is, holy and righteous in all of His ways. It lays bare our sin, and it lays bare all the judgment that's due our sin. And then it steps in and salves it with mercy. David had already had the words of forgiveness applied to his life immediately upon hearing that he was the one. Mercy comes and it forgives somebody like David for whom there is no sacrifice other than Christ. Christ took the place of David. We all know this, but we forget so easily. Christ is David's son. Christ is the one who is the sacrifice. Christ is the movement of God toward guilty sinners. Christ is the one who stood in the place for your sin, for my sin. Christ is the only one and the only sacrifice 
that makes a way to secure mercy for someone like you, me, or David. The working of grace leads us to this understanding. And then look there in verse 18, David's appeal to do good to Zion and in your good pleasure build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. I, I think David turns to the church. He turns to the people of God. He turns to this kingdom that God is building. And he's saying, God, do this. He understands that the kingdom, as it's established under his rule, is slipping because of his own sin. But, but in, in his mercy, he says, God, do this for your people also. Build your kingdom on this thing that I'm appealing to. This mercy, steadfast love. God. Build up your church. Lead them to delight in you and you take delight in them. This comes through Christ alone. Uh, Calvin talks about humility and what it looks like as it's worked out in the, gra- in grace, the working of grace in the Christian life. And, it, and I, 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 this just caught my mind because it, it's so much like myself. When we, when we think about humility... We think about it as a virtue to be attained, right? If, if, if you're to be humble, then we think, okay, if humility, I remember doing this in college, humility, I need to work on humility, it's on the list. Humility, I'm going to attain this virtue. And what Calvin says is that's not humility, that's actually pride. He says humility is, is, is the recognition that you've got nothing. That you've got no leg to stand on. That there is nothing in you that can pursue humility. There is nothing in you that's virtuous. There is only something that you can appeal to outside of yourself. And this is what David is being taken through. The grace of God leads us to a place where we appeal to nothing in ourselves. And we take hold of all the riches of God's mercy. Do you realize that Matthew is so bold as to say that Jesus was the son of the, the son of the wife of Uriah? That, that somehow the wife of Uriah shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. That's scandalous. The grace of God is for people broken and hurting, lost, longing. People who have no leg to stand on. Blind Bartimaeus stands by the road and cries, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. You all stand by the roadside. The king marches by in all of his glory and you cry, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy. The grace of God leads us to the place where we see that it's only in Christ that we find our hope, our forgiveness, that our lips are loose to sing, that our hearts are lifted up. Where blood is sprinkled that has the ability to actually cleanse and forgive. The grace of God is scandalous. But it's only scandalous if we really believe that we have health in ourselves. 
It's not scandalous if we understood our own state. If you're not a, if you've never trusted Christ and you're here this morning, I have a couple of things to say to you. One, there's nobody in this room that's better than you are. Not one. Not in any way. And the grace of God is enough for whatever it is in your life. You can stand by that road and cry, Jesus, have mercy on me. And He can forgive you. Christian, sing the praises of God. Lift up your hearts. Rejoice in the, in the salvation that is yours in Christ. Jesus, the Son of David, has had mercy on you.